Hello, knowledge seekers. In this episode of 20 Minute Books, we dive into the world of economics with the seminal work, The Wealth of Nations, by Adam Smith. A pivotal text in shaping the study of economics, it takes a deep look at how nations achieve affluence. Authored by Adam Smith, a reputed Scottish philosopher and economist, this work cements his reputation as the father of modern economics. His advocacy of individual freedom to pursue self-interest within an unregulated market sends any government intervention, underlines his belief in this as the key to national prosperity. His magnum opus, The Wealth of Nations, continues to wield significant influence in today's world and stands as a beacon of economic theory. This episode is for all those who have a keen interest in the understanding, the foundation stones of capitalism and the free market economy. It is also for the curious minds that want to delve into the essence of this monumental work of economic theory. So join us as we unpack the wealth of knowledge within the wealth of nations. The Wealth of Nations, the most influential economic book of all time. Introduction. Dive into the deep end. Unearth the profound principles behind economic theory. Have you ever stumbled upon the phrase invisible hand in the vast realm of economics and wondered what it truly signifies, or pondered over the intricate workings of a free market? And what about the impact of the mercantilist belief on the accumulation of precious metals like gold and silver? These fascinating aspects of economic theory find their roots in the compelling writings of the Scottish philosopher and economist Adam Smith in his landmark work, The Wealth of Nations. Revered as the father of modern economics, Smith's vision endorsed a free market driven by limited government interference, a perspective that continues to shape the discourse among contemporary economic thinkers. As we delve into the brilliant mind of Adam Smith, we'll see how he saw the lifeblood of a nation's prosperity pumping through the arteries of a free market. We'll also explore his thoughts on taxing complexities, the vitality of free trade, and the cornerstone idea of economic self-interest. In this enlightening journey through Smith's work, you'll unfold the mystery of why there's an economic silver lining to individual selfishness, why Scotland should steer clear from winemaking, and how labor division can turbocharge productivity by over 2,000 times. Part 1. Unleashing Productivity. How the magic of labor division ignites efficiency and fuels trade. Picture this. You're at the helm of a pin-making factory, and you've just hired an unschooled worker to craft the tiny metallic items. He wrestles through the arduous 18-step process all by himself, barely managing to produce a single pin by the day's end. Now, let's rethink the approach. What if you had a team of 18 untrained workers, each specializing in one of the 18 steps? It's not just 18 pins per day. Suddenly, the factory is humming with activity, churning out nearly 50,000 pins daily. This illustrates the game-changing power of labor division. It turbocharges productivity by transforming erstwhile wasted time into fertile productive periods. Plus, workers focusing on one task are likelier to innovate and drive productivity even further. 
Take the early fire engines, for example. A simple invention by a young lad, a string to operate the water valve, considerably enhanced its efficiency. It's worth noting that the boy was solely tasked with manually controlling the valve before this innovation. As productivity skyrockets, an excess of goods often amasses, ready to be traded. The butcher with extra meat, for instance, could trade it for the baker's bread. But what happens when the baker doesn't need meat? Enter money, the universal facilitator of exchange. Our butcher can sell his meat to any interested party and then use the money to buy bread, or perhaps cheese if that's his preference. This system empowers individuals to excel in their specific crafts or fields, leading to another layer of labor division. And so, the circle turns. Division of labor enhances productivity, which begets surplus, prompting trade in the marketplace. Part 2. Beyond Glitters Understanding why a nation's wealth is truly dictated by its capacity for labor and production, not gold hoards. Back in the day, a nation's economic success was measured by the stockpiles of gold and silver it had stashed away, an approach known as mercantilism that held sway over 18th century economic thought. Governments would levy import tariffs to prevent money leakage, while simultaneously subsidizing exports, a practice known as protectionism, to attract foreign currency, hoping to bloat their national reserves. But this train of thought was fueled by a couple of fundamental misconceptions. Firstly, it elevated gold and silver to a pedestal of wealth, oblivious to the fact that they're merely tradable commodities, just like grain or meat. Secondly, it assumed that a nation's prosperity came at the expense of others. In reality, trade stimulates growth for all parties involved, not just for the winner at the expense of the loser. The true driver of wealth for a nation lies not in its shiny treasures, but in the sweat and toil of its labor force. Labor, after all, generates tradable goods and services, setting the real value of a product. Let's dissect this a bit further by considering the humble pin. When pins are produced, three different types of income are generated. Workers receive wages for their labor. The factory owner garners profits from the pin sales, and the landlord collects rent for the factory site. The cumulative output from all labor is known as stock, which can be split into two categories. Some stock is consumed immediately to sustain its owner. The rest can be deployed to generate its own revenue. This is what we call capital. If this capital stays within the owner's control, like a pin sharpening machine, it is termed fixed capital. However, when it needs to venture beyond the owner's hands to generate profit, say a merchant's inventory, it's labeled circulating capital. In the grand scheme, a nation's wealth hinges not on its gleaming gold reserves, but on its knack for producing tradable goods, revealing the real gold mine, its labor force. Part 3. Navigating the Unseen. The Self-Interest Compass and how it steers societal prosperity. While selflessness is often lauded as a virtue, surprisingly, acting in one's self-interest can lead to collective benefits, not just personal gain. Intrigued? Let's delve into the dynamics. People, by nature, are driven by self-interest. It's this inherent instinct, not a benevolent spirit, that fuels our commercial exchanges. 
Take your neighborhood butcher or grocer. They don't provide you with fresh cuts of meat or ripe produce out of goodwill. They're motivated by the money you part with for their goods. The same self-interest also nudges them towards maintaining high-quality standards, lest their customers, including you, start shopping elsewhere. By considering their long-term interest, they steer clear of exploiting customers with sky-high prices or subpar products. Such inherent checks and balances are the byproducts of trade, reducing the need for external regulation, except when this self-regulation fails to guard against merchant malpractices. Interestingly, this principle of self-interest doesn't stop at influencing individual behavior. It also has wider societal implications. When we possess capital to invest, our instinctual preference is towards domestic industries over foreign ones. They appear less risky. Plus, being self-oriented, we'll channel our capital where it's most likely to maximize our returns. While these moves might appear selfish, they inadvertently bolster societal revenue. More capital finds its way into local industries, and funds flow into promising ventures that generate increased revenue. Since enhanced revenue is a byproduct of amplified production, our capital investments are essentially steering society towards producing more overall, thereby enriching the nation. It's almost like an invisible hand is guiding us to advance societal interests, a hand we never consciously intended to follow. Part 4. Less is more. When it comes to government intervention, a hands-off approach unleashes the free market for optimal economic growth. So, we know that it's advantageous for individuals to act in their self-interest. But how does this affect the government's role? Simply put, the government's mandate should be streamlined to a few key responsibilities. Its primary role should be to defend society from external aggression or internal violence by maintaining an equipped professional army at all times. It should enforce the rule of law, safeguarding legal rights, and penalizing criminal behavior. Furthermore, it should oversee the construction and maintenance of public infrastructures, things too complex or expensive for individuals to handle, like roads and bridges. It should also foster commerce and education, like offering basic universal schooling. Any governmental involvement beyond these outlined duties could potentially hamper economic growth. Instead of meddling with commerce through taxation or regulation, the government should foster a free market, an economic playground where buyers and sellers can freely exchange goods across borders at mutually agreed prices, sans trade tariffs or restrictions like in mercantilism. In this free market ecosystem, taxation should be scaled back to cover only the cost of the government's core responsibilities. Each individual should contribute taxes commensurate with his income and those who profit from transactions should shoulder their tax burden. A free market is the catalyst for maximal economic growth. Why? Because individuals, better than the government, understand what's beneficial for them and, by extension, society. To illustrate, consider this. While it's technically possible to cultivate wine grapes in Scotland's greenhouses, it'd be prohibitively expensive compared to growing them in France. An individual, guided by the wisdom that it's folly to manufacture something domestically if it's cheaper to import, would discern that producing wine in Scotland isn't viable. However, under a mercantilist regime, 
the government, in its bid to deter wine imports and boost exports, would still attempt to produce Scottish wine. A free market is the guard against such expensive misjudgments. Final Summary Central Takeaways from this book The path to maximizing societal productivity hinges on establishing a division of labor that empowers individuals to focus on their areas of expertise. The surplus generated can then be traded or invested in line with an individual's self-interest. Intriguingly, these self-interested actions inadvertently serve society's best interests. Consequently, the government should minimize its intervention and pave the way for a free market to flourish, thereby fueling societal prosperity. Thank you for joining me today on this journey of learning and discovery as we explored the insights of another thought-provoking book in our growing library of knowledge. If you've enjoyed our time together, please take a moment to follow our podcast, give us a five-star rating, and share 20-minute books with other knowledge seekers. Your support truly means a lot. Don't forget to join me again in the next episode, where we will delve into another enriching book. Until then. Happy reading and happy listening.